<clears throat> well, uh, so we are, today is the very last sermon in, in this uh, sermon series that we're doing on the miracles of Jesus uh, in the Gospel of John. And this last miracle is a miracle that Jesus performs uh, for two sisters, uh, Mary and Martha, uh, for their dead brother, Lazarus. So there are, two, there are two experiences that every single person in this room has in common. All of us uh, have been born. So if you're a human here, uh, you know, you, you've been born. And the other experience is death. Every single one of us will die. The statistics on death are very impressive. One out of every one person will die. None of us gets out of here alive. But as universal as death is, as... Uh, you know, as you know, everybody goes through it, you know, we, we never have quite gotten used to this, this uh, guarantee. Uh, we, the, you know, this, this experience, this uh, final outcome that's appointed for all of us, uh, we've never quite, quite gotten used to it, and appropriately, we resist it when, uh, when we face death, when we're touched by it, when we're threatened by it. Uh, Woody Allen was asked once uh, if he was afraid of dying, and he says, I don't fear death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. Uh, Later on uh, in another interview, they asked him what his thoughts were on death, and he says, I am strongly against it. And I think we relate to that, don't we? Uh, You know, most of us uh, don't like to think about death, we don't like to talk about death. Uh, Many of us fear death, uh, both our own death and the death of our loved ones. Um, this is just a very, very uncomfortable topic. And our culture doesn't really help us out much with it. Um, our culture uh, kind of ignores this reality, as universal as it, as it is, as certain as it is. Um, we live in a culture that pushes death to the margins. And so I've got a good friend who says, it strikes me in our culture with that vaunts of its boundary pushing and appetite for shock, that death happens to be something that we just don't come near. Uh, in fact, in our culture, death is the final taboo. So, uh, you know, if you want a, to kill a dinner party, just bring up uh, mortality, right? That'll kill the joy, that'll kill the, the buzz really quickly. And Ernest Becker, uh, he talks about, uh, he has, he's got a book called The Denial of Death, and he talks about how, like, like we live in this culture that tries to, uh, as, as normal as death is, we, we ignore it, we push it to the boundaries, we don't like to talk about it. And, and he says this, he says, modern man is drinking and drugging himself out of awareness, or he spends his time shopping, which is the same thing. So he says, we're trying to forget about it, we're trying to ignore it, we try to pretend like it doesn't happen. But the problem with this is that, is that when we do face death, which we all will, th- the culture doesn't give us resources to handle it. What do we do uh, when we face death? How do we handle it when it touches our lives? Well, the culture doesn't help us much, does it? Well, the Bible doesn't have this problem. Because from first to last, from the beginning of it all the way to the end, the Bible is, is constantly talking about our mortality. Uh, the problem of death is something that the Bible talks about all the way through. And it reminds us over and over again of the problem of death and what the gospel has done to, um, to solve this great problem. In fact, uh, even when you look at the Christian calendar, uh, coming up this Wednesday is a holiday called Ash Wednesday. And what is this? This is a service dedicated to observing our mortality. We put ashes on your forehead and we say, from dust you came and to dust you shall return. It's a reminder of this uh, grim reality of death because the Bible wants to teach us how to walk through it, what to do about it. 
And so uh, this story that we're looking at, John 11, is just another little story about, about death. And as we go through it, here's what I want to do. I think it teaches us three things about the nature of death. We're going to go through all three. It teaches us about the reality of death. Uh, Second of all, it teaches us about the wrongness of death. And then finally, about the defeat of death that we have in Jesus. Let's go through these these three things. And so um, the story begins, chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and Martha, her sister. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So the first thing we see here is the reality of death. So the story begins with uh, a telegram, a message that came to Jesus and his disciples, and it's a summons. It's a summons to to come uh, because somebody is ill. It's a summons to come for healing. Now, this happens all the way through the gospel narratives. So there's um, lepers that ask Jesus to come to heal them. There's a man whose uh, son is ill who asks Jesus to come and heal the son. Um, Over and over again, Jesus is called to come and heal. Now, the difference here is that in most of those stories, the person asking Jesus to come is a perfect stranger. Uh, The the, the person asking for healing is somebody Jesus doesn't know. Uh, They don't know Jesus. Uh, They're strangers to Jesus, but in this story, uh, the people that are asking for help are people that Jesus knows well and loves very deeply. This is Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So this is a family. Uh, Jesus often went and stayed in their home. Uh, They were followers of Jesus. They were close disciples of Jesus. Um, It says here that that Martha or Mary was the one who anointed, this is verse 3, anointed the Lord with ointment and washed his feet with her hair. So this is the Mary that loved Jesus so much that she, she performed this act of, of sacrificial love. Um, and then it says in verse 4 that when they sent the telegram, they simply said, the one whom you love is sick. This is Lazarus. So Jesus loved this man so much that they, he just would know, oh, this is the guy that you loved. And then later on in verse 5, it simply straight up says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. So incredibly strong words here to describe how much they love Jesus and how much Jesus loved them. And that's why it's so strange the way Jesus responds because uh, you would think that when Jesus heard that a man like this was really ill, the first thing he would do was find, find a horse, jump on it, and rush to Lazarus as soon as he possibly could. That's what you'd expect him to do. But notice, when Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick, what does Jesus do? It says... He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He stays put. He doesn't act. And he waits. And then finally, four days later, Jesus finally shows up, you know, late to the party. And it's not a party at all. It's a funeral. And when he shows up, uh, Mary and Martha are upset. And they look at him and they say, Jesus, if you would have been here, our brother, the one that you love would not have died. They're very disappointed But here we learn the first lesson of the story, and that is the reality 
of pain and suffering in the lives of people that Jesus really, really loves. Um, Earlier in chapter 6, there's this one little uh, vignette where there's a man who was born blind, and the disciples say, uh, who sinned, this man or his parents, that this man was born blind? And Jesus says, neither. And in this story, Jesus breaks that logic altogether. So in that day, people said, thought that, you know, if, if, uh, if God was mad at you, or if God didn't like you very much, then you'd get sick. But if you were really good, if God really loved you, then you'd, you'd have health, then you'd have a healthy life. But this story breaks that logic altogether. And it says you may love Jesus, and Jesus may love you. And still deep, tragic reality can touch your life. And what I love about this story is it, it teaches us something about the realism of the Bible. Right, the Bible acknowledges the reality of pain and suffering. And a lot of us think, you know, if I'm really good or if I love Jesus a whole lot or if I, if I do all the right things, then nothing bad will happen to me. Well, this story proves just the opposite. There is realism here, the realism of pain and suffering, which is kind of a, you know, this is my most depressing point, <laughs> but it's kind of a mercy too. And that great work of art, uh, The Princess Bride, There's this little line, uh, the dreaded pirate Robert says, life is pain, highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. And guess what? The Bible's not selling something. The Bible says you can love Jesus a whole lot. You can do everything right and still be touched with premature, tragic circumstances, premature death and tragic circumstances. There is realism here. And, and notice, you know, in the Bible, Jesus, the best man who ever lived. The man, you know, who's better than Jesus here? None of us are. He was the best, most righteous man who ever lived that, that God loved more than anybody else, and yet Jesus Christ died an early death. We live in a broken world, and the reality is that in this broken world, things are not the way they're supposed to be. And because of that, even those of us who love Jesus experience pain and suffering. Um, I've got uh, three friends uh, that just this past month uh, have been touched with premature death. So uh, um, Jameson Stockhouse was a guy that I went, did a pastoral internship with. Beautiful guy uh, on the inside. And uh, loved Jesus and was a church planter and yet he contracted cancer last year. We prayed and prayed and prayed that God would take it away and just two weeks ago he died. Uh, there is uh, Peter John Corson. Peter John Corson is the son of a famous pastor, and um, uh, Peter John's uh, dad, his, his wife died in a car accident, and then his daughter died in a car accident, and then last year, his son was diagnosed with cancer. Two weeks ago, Peter John Corson died, and then there's Jennifer Naraki. Jennifer Naraki, I went to junior high with Jennifer, and um, she has um, some form of cancer, and she's now on hospice, and she's been Instagramming her way through this, uh, this terminal illness. All of these people love Jesus. All of these people have seemed to do everything right, and yet, here they are touched with tragic circumstances. This is the realism. This is the reality that even this passage is trying to show us is that, is that, that this sort of thing happens in a broken world. Now notice uh, what Jesus does here is, is when they come, when he comes, the women, they say, if you would have been here, our brother wouldn't have died. And this is kind of an accusation. It's a reproof almost of Jesus. Where were you? 
And what I want you to see is that Jesus doesn't silence their reproof. What kind of a God is this that here they come accusing him and saying, where were you and what happened? And Jesus just takes it. And as you read the Psalms in the Old Testament, for example, over and over again, you've got Psalms of lament where people are accusing God for his absence. He knows how we speak when we're desperate. And so he just accepts this this rebuke from the women. But notice what what I want you to see also is that Jesus never gives them an answer. Where were you, Jesus, implicit in this statement is, where were you? Why did you let this happen? And Jesus never explains to them why. Cryptically for his disciples, he says, this is for the glory of God. He's saying, I'm in control. This, This isn't an accident. I didn't botch everything up. But he never gives them an answer. He simply just says, trust me. Right, one of the biggest problems with suffering is, is unrealistic and false expectations. And here the Bible says, uh, uh, the Bible's not selling us anything, and it says, when tragic circumstances come, uh, this, is, this is to be expected. In fact, this is a promise of Jesus, and he says, I want you to trust. The reality of death is the first thing we see in the story. But secondly, I want you to see that the story shows us something about the wrongness of death. So even though death is a reality, even though a tragic circumstances are to be expected, even for people that love Jesus a lot, this doesn't mean that, that these sorts of thing are, things are okay. And in the story, we see that Jesus, he is not okay with the death of this, of this man. And so uh, when Jesus comes to Martha, um, he, she says, where were you? And he says something about how he's a resurrection resurrection and the life, and, and then she brings Mary. And when he comes to Mary, something interesting happens. So she comes to him, and Mary's a sensitive soul who is deeply hurt by what's happened. And, and she says, Lord, she says the exact same thing that Martha did. If you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus looks back at her, and he simply says, where have you laid him? And then notice what happens here in verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was, And Solomon, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, and he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? And then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. So notice that when Jesus comes to this tomb, how does he respond? Well, he he gets really emotional. Uh, He emotes. uh, He's troubled. And there are two words to describe uh, Jesus' emotions in the passage. And they're two very, very strong words. Uh, in, John, in verse 33, it says, Jesus wept, the shortest verse in the Bible. And when it says wept, this is not like a few little tears came down his face. This means that Jesus lost it. Jesus broke down. Jesus wailed at the tomb. And then if this wasn't enough, later on, right when he stands before the, the stone, it says that Jesus was deeply moved. Now, I don't know why they translated this, this word this way, because it really means Jesus was angry. In fact, it was a, it's a strong word for anger, like Jesus was quaking with rage at the tomb. 
Now, why was Jesus so sad? Why was Jesus so angry? Well, in one sense, he was, he was, uh, he was, he was showing empathy for Mary and Martha, right? He's entering into their pain. He's not above it. He's going right in there and, and feeling what they feel. But the question is, what is he angry at? Is he angry at Mary and Martha? Is he angry at the crowds? Is he angry at himself for, because this has happened? No, when you look at it, Jesus, I think, there's no other way to explain this, is that he is angry at death. He's quaking with rage. He's deeply moved at death. And here we see the wrongness of death. Our death is not okay. When Jesus confronts the reality of death, he is, he's revolted by it. Jesus is more revolted by death than we are. It's important to see this. So in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is a famous pas- passage where the Apostle Paul is laying out the theology of the afterlife. And he talks about how um, we're the resurrection and about how God will wipe away every tear and about how we're going to live forever with God in paradise. And you would think that Paul, uh, knowing all this, would, would say, now, uh, death is your buddy. Death, you know, is the thing that gets you into this forever bliss. Death is a good thing. But no, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says death is the final enemy. And his logic is clear. Sin entered into the world, and through sin, death came. And death has followed ever since. And it's the greatest problem of the human race. You see, God did not create death. God's original intention for this world is that we would live. Uh, Beauty was meant to last. Love was meant to be forever. And when you do something right, it's meant to count. It's meant to count forever. We were meant to live And according to the story of the Bible, death is an intruder into God's good good creation. Death is an enemy. Death is an aberration. Death is unnatural. Death is not something that we ought to cozy up with. Jesus is just as revolted by death as we are. And why is that? It's because of of who we, we were created to be, right? Human beings are, like I said, we were meant to live, This is why Ernest Becker, I quoted him at the very beginning, he says this about death. He said, this is the terror, to have a name, a consciousness of self, deep inner feelings, an excruciating inner yearning for life and self, expression, and with all of this, yet to die. Right, we we resist death because we were never meant to die. This is not who we are. And I know what the Lion King told you. The circle of life, yeah, it's all natural, you know, we, uh, you know, we we're born and, and we live and when we die, we become fertilizer, but that's okay because the flowers grow and then you become food for plant, for other animals. Isn't that beautiful? And the Bible says, no, it's not beautiful. Death is an aberration and it is not normal. We were meant to live. <clears throat> Steve Jobs, who's, uh, there's a biography about Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson, and, and Steve is talking about his death, and he, at one point, they're in his garden, and uh, Walter Isaacson says, well, do you, do you believe in God? I mean, you're, here you're headed towards death. Do you believe in God? And Steve Jobs looks back at him and says, sometimes I do, and sometimes I don't. It's 50-50, but I find myself believing a bit more. Maybe that is because I want to believe in an afterlife, and when you die, it, it, it does not just all disappear. 
The wisdom you've accumulated somehow just lives on. But then he paused for a second and he said, yeah, but sometimes I think it's like an on-off switch. It turns off and you're done. And perhaps that's why I didn't put on-off switches on Apple devices. We don't want there to be an off button. And we appropriately are revolted by death when it happens. And Jesus here is quaking with rage and he's, and he's losing it because this is the appropriate way to approach death. Because of who we are and because of what love is. I mean, all the way through the passage, it's emphasizing Jesus loved them. And it's because Jesus loved them so much that death was so bad. The thing that's so horrible about death is separation. And this is why C.S. Lewis said the death of a loved one is an amputation. And her, he talks about his wife, Joy. Her absence is like the sky spread over everything. I loved her. I didn't want to be separated for, and death is, from her, and death is not right. And the Bible echoes, echoes that sentiment. It is, death is the great enemy. It is wrong. And so we see the wrongness of it. And so the reality of death, secondly, the wrongness of death. But then I want you to see here the defeat of death. In verse 39, Jesus said, Take me to the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they, they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And then he said these things. He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And so Jesus approaches the tomb. And one commentator said that he's, remember remember he's quaking with rage. They they said he goes to the tomb like a boxer goes into a fight. He's going to defeat the great enemy. He tells Mary, I want you to roll away the stone. And I love what Mary says. He says she says, by this time, he's been in there four days. He's going to stink. Uh, the King James Version, uh, some of you may know that. She literally says, behold, he stinketh, Lord. Uh, not now. Don't open that up. It's because in Jewish culture, in their worldview, uh, there was the belief that when a body was dead for more than three days, the spirit left the body. And so for three days, the spirit was there. But after the third day, the spirit was gone. It was too late. The body is just a carcass. This is just a skin and bone. And Mary's saying, Lord, it's too late. He's crossed the line. Uh, there is no more hope. This is all over. Jesus says, roll away the stone. And, and he speaks these words. He says, Lazarus, come out. Another commentator said that he had to use the word Lazarus because uh, if he just said come out, then everybody in the graveyard would come out. Because here is a man whose words have life-giving power. Jesus Christ's words have power to raise the dead. And when Jesus speaks the word, Lazarus is raised up, and he comes walking out of the tomb. And you picture this here. Here's this man, and he's wrapped up like a mummy, and he, and he comes kind of waddling out, you know, because he can't move, and, and he says, okay, unwrap him. And so they unwrap Lazarus, and slowly you see his face and his body, and he's alive. And everybody is astounded, because nothing like this has ever happened before. 
Up to this point, Jesus had made statements that he was divine. In fact, in John, these are called the I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. He made claims to deity. And here in this passage, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. I don't just point to the life. Jesus says, I am the life to which everybody else points. But here, he doesn't just make a claim to deity. He does something that only God could do. This man's words have life-giving power, have creative power. There are some people who say that Jesus was just a good man. Yes, I'll follow him. He's a good man. He was a very moral man, probably the best man who ever lived. But a man who made claims that Jesus made was, was not a good man. He was either a lunatic or he was an evil man who claimed to be God, or he was who he said he was. And here this story, Jesus Christ does something that no other man has ever done. He has raised the dead. And after this point, everything changes in the Gospel of John. Because when, a, when Jesus raised somebody from the dead, dead, you could not deny his power. And from this point forward, the Jews uh, make a plan to put Jesus to death. And, and somebody once said that in order to bring Lazarus out of the grave, Jesus Christ had to put himself in it. So this story points forward. It's a preview to the ultimate victory over death. Jesus Christ came into the world to go into a tomb, to be put on a cross and go into a tomb so that in that tomb he might punch a hole in death and come out on the other side to win a victory for all of us so that even though death is a reality, a tragic, tragic reality, because of what Jesus Christ has done, there is hope of resurrection. That even though a person may die, Jesus says, if you believe in me, you will live forever. This story teaches us about Jesus Christ's defeat of the great enemy. Like a boxer, he goes into the ring and he defeats death forever. And so these are the three things that this story teaches us about death. Did you catch them? The reality of death, even premature death, it happens even to people that, that Jesus loves. Realism. Second of all, this, this is not okay though. Death and suffering are not part of God's good world. These are here in the world because the world is broken. But the hope is that the, that the gospel gives us is that one day, uh, because of what Jesus Christ has done, we can live forever. There will be resurrection. Not just a vague afterlife, but bodily resurrection from the grave. We will live forever in God's new creation. So let me apply the sermon. So we've said these things. What does this mean for our lives? And a beautiful story about the defeat of death, and, and we've done something here that our culture doesn't do. We've actually sat and thought about this grim reality, but, but what does this teach us about how we can live on Monday morning? Well, I think one of the things it teaches us is that as Christians, we, we ought to be against death, just like Jesus was. Things like the Red Cross, things like hospice care, things like fighting against uh, the ravages of AIDS. Christians ought to be involved in this work. This is gospel work because Christians are against death wherever we see it. End of life care is, is something that Christians ought to really be concerned about. 
Charles Spurgeon at one point said, be often where people die. Our culture doesn't want to go there. We'd rather watch Netflix. But Christians are people that we can empathize and, and we know that, that it's okay to cry and it's okay to wail and it's okay to be revolted by this. Are we in those places where people die? Are we going in there just the way Jesus went into this, this funeral? Are we empathizing and caring for people and, and seeing these people that our culture doesn't like to look at? Are we against death? I've told you about my friend Jennifer Naraki and she's, you know, she's in hospice now and, and she's Instagramming her way through this terminal illness. And one thing she said, she, she hardly ever uses profanity. She's a Christian woman and she, you know, she's uh, usually pretty positive. But one thing she says all the way through her posts is F cancer. F cancer. And I think that's a biblical reality. Are we against death? Do we hate it? Are we revolted by it? Are we in those places empathizing for people as they face this dark reality? This path kind of leads us down, but I think it also pulls us up because it, it kind of presses us into our hope. Do we believe in the resurrection? You know, here Jesus, he stands before Mary and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The person who believes in me will live even though they die. And then he looks at her and she says, do, he says, do you believe this? It's a good question. Do you believe that? This story presses us into our belief. Do we really believe in resurrection? You know, are, are we prepared for death? Are we looking forward to that, you know, that hope that we have? Yes, we grieve, but do we grieve as those who have hope, is what Paul says. Are you ready for it when it comes? Have you believed in Jesus to receive this wonderful news of new life? But I think one other thing it, it, it asks us to do, and I want to camp here for just a few seconds before we end, I think this, this question is asking us, how do we live in light of the reality that death has been defeated? So here's what I thought was kind of interesting about the story. So um, Lazarus is raised from the grave, and he's out, and he's, and he's, he's freed from death, but I guess he had to go to work, you know, the next day, right? He had to keep on living. And I wonder if Lazarus lived differently after this experience. I wonder if the reality of the defeat of death changed the way Lazarus approached his living. Dallas Willard, uh, he, he talks about how in evangelists, we Christians, we, we come to people and we say, if you were to die tonight, do you know if you'd go to heaven? And he says, it's a good question. Death is a reality. You've got to be ready. But he says, I think another question to ask is, what if you didn't die tonight? How are you going to live? And I wonder how Lazarus lived here. I wonder if he lived differently. You know, with what risk and, and love and joy can we craft the remaining of our days given the reality that death is not the end? So many of us are afraid of life. You know, you're afraid of failure. And you're afraid for your loved ones. And you're afraid of the future. And, and so many of you are so afraid. Well, listen, your greatest fear has been defeated. That's what the gospel says. And if your greatest enemy has been defeated, then everything else is small in comparison. 
when I was younger, I, you know, I used to be afraid of roller coasters, and uh, you know, one time my, my sister drugged me on the Montezuma's Revenge, which was the biggest roller coaster in our city. And I, and I went through, the, it kind of went forward, and there's a big loop, and you went up, and then the big loop, and you went back, and uh, I almost threw up. And, uh, but after that, every other roller coaster was like nothing, flea bites. And I'm afraid of roller coasters now, consequently, I guess, still. But um, your greatest enemy has been defeated. Your greatest fear has been defeated by Jesus. And everything else, everything else, God, God says, I'm going to be with you. If I was able to do that, how much more am I going to be with you as you face the issue, issues you face on a daily basis? There's this great quote in Romans 8 um, where uh, Paul says this. He says, I am convinced that neither death nor life will be able to separate you from the love of God. He's saying, listen, you are, if you're a Christian, you are, God has bound you with cords of loving kindness. You are in a citadel of God's love. And there is nothing that will break that, nothing. Not sickness, not financial trouble, and not even death. Jesus' love is stronger than death. You can face anything. You could go into this world and you could love with abandon. You can risk. You can obey because Jesus Christ has defeated your greatest enemy. The reality of death, the wrongness of death, and the defeat of death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for uh, this passage, uh, John 11, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It, uh, we've done something here that is rare in our culture, and I pray, God, that as we have reflected on uh, just the universal reality of mortality, that you would uh, press us into the hope of the gospel. I pray that we would believe more and more in your life. God, I pray that as we meditate on the fact that your, your power is stronger than death, that it might give us courage, that it might give us purpose, that it might give us resolve to go into the places in this world where there is death and suffering, and that we might go into those places with courage. I pray that as we look into our future, Lord, that you would fill us with confidence. Lord, that you would strengthen us and enable us and make us fearless, and fearless to love and fearless to obey. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.